Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Well, we have got a treat for you today. We have got two very different um, children's authors with uh, me on this episode today. One being a good friend of mine, Stephen Butler, who is the author of the Nothing to See Here Hotel books, who are doing phenomenally well at the minute. And it was really great talking to Stephen. You know, I, I um, first read one of Stephen's first books, books, The Wrong Pong, which is kind of how I discovered Stephen's writing before I actually met him. Yeah, really, really funny children's author, really clever writer. Um, it was really great talking to him. And, you know, I think some people, when they see someone doing very successful, like Stephen is with his children's books, they, they think they've kind of got it easy. And that, that's not the case at all. Stephen's had lots of ups and downs in his writing career, which he shares with us. But he's, you know, he's really enjoying what he's doing at the moment. And, he, and he's working on some other things, which he sort of touches on a little bit. And yeah, just great talking to Stephen about his writing journey and the Nothing to See Here Hotel books. I'm still to still to read the latest one, but um, the ones I've read so far have not disappointed. They have been wonderful. Um, they're wonderful reads for children. So I urge anyone that's not checked them out yet to please check them out because um, Stephen does a wonderful job with um, his characters and and the story that he's created in the in the world of the, the nothing to see here hotel uh, beautifully illustrated by um Steve Lenton and um yeah it was great talking to Stephen you know he he was also made a cameo well you know more than a cameo i suppose you do see him quite often he had a couple of lines in it as well i believe um i'll get the knife in beauty and the beast um with Emma Watson um yes yeah, so it was a brilliant um opportunity for Stephen to, to do that for the film and he talked to us about that experience as well uh, which you know it was really interesting for me to hear because you know I'm a, I'm a big Disney geek and you know I love anything Disney I'm probably a Disney trivia nut so um yeah it was really great great hearing that stuff from from Stephen and um and then as well as Stephen Butler on this podcast we've also got the wonderful Jane Hissey and some of you may know Jane and some of you may not be familiar with Jane's work but Jane is the author and creator and illustrator of um, Old Bear. And, you know, I was really excited to get Jane on because, you know, it was quite nostalgic for me because I remember watching the Old Bear programmes on the old CITV and and had to, having the illustrations. Um, I've got some photos of Old Bear from when I was a child and, and, the, and the books as well. So it was really great to have Jane on. And... Um, and you know, getting Jane's just just seeing how the publishing world has has changed and the, the challenges that Jane had to go through when she was when she created Old Bear and sort of being involved in the how how it all sort of came about um, with Old Bear and sort of being involved in that creative process with um, it going on to television and TV shows and 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 all that and yeah and you know talking about how the industry and the creative world of children's literature has changed. Um, so yeah, really great to talk to both these guys today. Um, Stephen, um, you know, a really up 
wonderful upcoming children's author, which I'm sure we're going to have plenty of success from, and hearing from Jane, who bought us Old Bear, which is just which is just huge, because I, I used to, I loved Old Bear, I just loved it. Anyway, so we, we've got children's, we got children's authors from the past and present with you today, but Jane's not done, Jane's not done herself, she has got a new Old Bear edition coming out for Christmas, a Little Bear's Star, I believe it's called, she will um, talk to us a little bit about that, and what she's writing, and, and how she's been doing over lockdown with both these guys, because you know, it's it can be um, a challenge in times, you know, for for all of us. And um, especially with writers, you know, although you can kind of write at home and, and do your little bits, it's difficult, you know, it can be difficult because, you know, like we miss doing all the, the stuff that, you know, we do, you know, going out there to schools, libraries and, and all sorts. So, yeah, it was really, really just great talking to both these guys. But without further ado, here is my episode with the wonderful Stephen Butler first followed by the creator of Old Bear, Jane Hissy. And I'm glad to say he's a very good friend of mine. It's Stephen Butler. Hi, Stephen. How's it going? Hello. <laughs> I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, very, very good. Thank you. Um, weird year, though. Really weird year. Um, how's your year been? Fine, really. I mean, you know, I can't complain. I, you know, I, nothing bad has happened. I've been bored and climbing up the walls, but you know, I think that's probably the nicer outcome of what's been going on. Yeah. Um, I've got quite a bit of writing done, so that's good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Am I right in thinking like we've both got a, a canine companion over this year as well? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I've got a, a, a French bulldog puppy. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I've got a little dog myself called Robin. So, yeah, he's doing it. He's doing it. Okay. Um, but anyway, yeah, the, <laughs> the Nothing to See Here Hotel looks like it's been doing really well. Is the fourth book now? Yeah, the fourth book, uh, it's newly out. It came out in September. So it's been, yeah, it's been out a little while. Yeah. Brilliant. And um, I've always wondered, where did you get the, the, the idea of the premise for the Nothing to See Here Hotel? Where did that idea come from? Do you know, it's one of those ones, and then, like, I mean, you're, you know, you know this from writing, but, you yeah. know, there, there are stories you've harboured in your brain for years, mm-hmm. and then the Nothing to See Here Hotel was not one of them. Um, I was, I was asked to write a short story for an anthology, we're going back, it must have been 2016, I think, and it was an anthology of short stories, all themed around summer. Um, and so I came up with this idea because of that, of this little tiny Brighton front, uh, like Brighton seafront B&B with like four bedrooms that was from, for a little B&B for magical creatures. And I wrote this very short story. I haven't read it in years. I can't really remember very much about it. And then after I wrote the short story, uh, Simon and Schuster commissioned it as a series and it grew and it became this enormous hotel with hundreds of guests and it yeah just became something massive but it kind of appeared out of nowhere really <laughs> it looks really fun the characters that you've made for the book i mean i haven't, I haven't read the latest installment yet but the characters that you've oh, kind of you, created you are forgiven from it, <laughs> the characters that you've created from it it must be really fun make um, sort of inventing those characters they're great characters to that you've, you've yeah created. yeah i mean it's it's kind of one of my favorite things i, I enjoy populating a world and um <laughs> And when you're not bound, you know, when you're writing a story that isn't even bound by species, you can go kind of quite wild with it. So, yeah, there's quite a few crazy characters. I tend to, my favourites are always the kind of belligerent older ladies. I just don't, <laughs> I don't know why I really enjoy those characters. Yeah, <laughs> Br- brilliant. 
And um, so yeah, the illustrations again, um, done by Steve Lenton. Um, yeah. Is I always get Frankie the the illustration of Frankie looks a bit like you when you were younger. Like the hair, I don't know what it was. Some of the um, yeah, it was. The, there's, the there's a lot of interview. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was deliberate. Steve, Stephen um, designed Frankie as young me, <laughs> yes. and also if you look at his post photograph, Stephen has drawn himself into the book as his dad. Um, okay. So yeah, so he's in there. there. There's there's we we used when we when we did book one, we used quite a lot of visual clues and things um like nancy the spider who's the hotel chef um nancy was based on dame edna um oh, which because yeah <laughs> so yeah I there are that. quite a few <laughs> there are quite yeah um it was when we first started putting like creating the you know obviously i wrote the characters first but then we had to put them on well Stephen had to put them on paper but obviously we did a lot of talking and we used quite a lot of visuals for that i know that maudlin maloney in book two was based on miriam margulies <laughs> <laughs> that's great so obviously it looks like it's going really well at the minute with the nothing to see here hotel but i think you know with writers it's always great when you're seeing everything going really well and it's like yeah everything's great at the minute but you know i think sometimes we need to focus on every writer has their own um experience of failing and bad experiences as well like are you able to share some of those with us Oh God, yeah. I mean, I've had plenty. Um, I mean, a really big example for me, my my biggest kind of example of failure and kind of having to get over it with with in the world of writing was um, the Dennis the Menace books. Yes, because um, it, it it was awful. I mean, at the time, it was just it was just the worst. I I worked for three years and did six Dennis books, and it kind of took over my life. And then at the end of book six. Um, the Beano rebranded and they went to digital computer graphic images and anything that didn't match that brand was just incinerated, was just pulped. So after six years, uh, six, uh, six books in three years, um, they were just completely, they, they, they went from, you know, being really successful to not existing. They were in no bookshops. They were just pulped. Um, which was the worst. Yeah. Well, um, and yeah, I, into the water. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's weird. You know, you do learn to grow a thick skin, and these, you know, you learn the the longer you spend in the publishing world, you learn that these things just happen. Mm -hmm. But I remember at the time thinking that my career was over, and that I would, you know, will I ever write again? <laughs> of course, I've written far more since yes. than you know I had written before I did those books. Yeah, but um. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I, I mean, unless they're some kind of superhuman, I don't know a writer who hasn't experienced some failure in their career, yeah. I think. And I think that's that's important for people to hear, because I think sometimes, you know, when you get that rejection letter or you get the, you know, this is just oh, isn't yeah. right for our book list, people can kind of get a bit downhearted and, and things like that. Um, you see on Twitter and stuff, you, you see people sharing their experiences. But even, you know, when you think of uh, Roald Dahl, J.K. Rowling, they've all, everyone's had to experience it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a picture book that I've been trying to sell for years and I still think it's one of the best things I've ever written. <laughs> but um, it's slightly manic and a little bit um, scary. And I've had so many publishers say, oh, my God, we love it. We're going to we're going to buy it. We're going to publish it. And then obviously they take it to a meeting and then they come back and they're like, 
yeah, actually, we're not going to publish it. <laughs> no, I've been pushing that baby around for years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, brilliant. So have you, obviously, like, um, I've seen you're, you're very active in terms of, like, you know, the World Book Day shows that you do, and, you know, you go around some schools and have their interactions with schools. Have you missed doing that this year? Because it hasn't been able to sort of go out there. And yeah, that. I mean, obviously, we, we uh, yeah, I miss doing events. World Book Day, we just scraped by. So we did yes, World Book yeah. Day this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point, when we were out, you know, we were out there with thousands of children. Mm. it would never happen now yeah. at this point but um yeah when we were doing the world book day tour this year the rumblings of coronavirus you know at that point mm. it was still very much in asia and um but that it was on the news a lot and yeah. you knew that something was happening mm. so yeah so um but sadly i don't think there will be a tour net you know this coming spring it's too soon yeah um but yeah, other than that, I do miss doing the events. I love going into schools. I know you no, do I as do. well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I kind of I miss I miss see. It's really nice to get out on the road and meet your readers, isn't it? Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I miss I miss doing that. But we've done a few we've done a few Zoom events, which has been quite fun with schools. That's cool. Yeah, I remember just being able to fit in book weeks. Obviously, for most writers, the World Book Week is your most sort of uh, productive week of the year, you know, in yeah. terms of, you know, I had like seven schools booked in five days and there was all these rumblings of potential school closures and you're just kind of there like, please, just just this week, just can I just get through please. this week? Yeah. <laughs> just get through this week. But luckily, yes, like you said, we just managed to scrape through that. Um, but yeah, hopefully, you know, we'll be able to get back out there and uh, do our things. I think it, you know, it does make it worthwhile when you go out and you get the interaction with the kids that you're, that you're writing for doesn't yes and we have to have faith that it will that it will happen again absolutely because i see it must at, be wonderful. at some point <laughs> yes yeah it must be wonderful for you to see because i see um on twitter quite a lot you get um sort of letters from teachers and the, the classrooms about your there's nothing to see here hotel they're working on that must be really nice for you to see mm. on social media it's been amazing yeah i mean you know um the teacher network on social media because they have this incredibly well formed um social network of teachers and schools they communicate brilliantly and yeah the, the teacher network has just been the most brilliant champion for the books um a lot i i suppose i mean as with any book that has lots of character and spoke uh, lots of characters uh, excuse me and um kind of space for the kids to be creative you know to run with it and do their own thing um kind of works with them so yeah they've been brilliant the te- teachers on social media are, are kind of my little guardian angels at the moment in yeah. lockdown and they have yeah. such an important role to um, teachers don't they because I mean, for some children i guess teaching i mean teachers are the only sort of um outlet they have to have a book read to them or be introduced to different books. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely because i mean it's tough competing against the the fortnights of the world and xboxes and, and things yeah. like isn't it yeah and also you know the, you know it's a sad st- statistic but um there are a lot of homes that don't have books in them and, mm. and that you know there, there are a lot of homes that don't you know reading isn't a culture within their walls and it's teachers that bring those books to the kids and so yet yeah, um i i take my hats off to the teachers and the librarians of the world they yes. are bookie bookie heroes to me <laughs> absolutely um so yeah obviously before you started your writing journey am i right to think you had a sort of a um a background in theater as well you did some worked on in yeah, the yeah. shows in london for, for the shows what what shows did you work on um oh gosh um yeah i mean I, I i i never planned to be a writer it wasn't on my it wasn't on my radar it wasn't on my list of things i wanted to do um and I trained, I went to, you know, I went to stage school, I trained as an actor and I, I, I trained in musical theatre. 
And so, yeah, I did. I was in the West End and running around the country on tour for years. Um, what did I do? I did. Um, oh, God, lots of things. Um, <laughs> I did. What was your favourite? Did you have a favourite experience? Yeah. yeah. Wizard of Oz of the Palladium was yeah. amazing just because it was just this massive umbrella show and yeah. just to be under that lovely, cosy, you yeah. know, the, 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 and in the cosy hug of a big West End musical was lovely. Um, I did The Tempest a few years ago um, at Theatre Royal Haymarket and that is that remains one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Um, just watching, you know, Ray Fiennes was the lead in it, and, you know, Ray Fiennes was Prospero, and Trevor Nunn directed it, um, and just watching these kind of greats of film and theatre working was just the most amazing experience. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you worry about um, the future of, not to go too much about COVID, or whatever, but do you worry about the future of musical theatre and theatre, just because, you know... Oh, massively, I, yeah. I've, I've, I've missed it. You know, I live in Stratford-upon-Avon, and just seeing that the RSC and... Um, and things like that being closed and the smaller theatres in the town as well. It's it's a worry, you know, seeing how they're going to get through all this. Yeah, I think I think it's terrifying. And, you know, it's it's very nice that the book world has kind of thrived through lockdown because people have been reading lots. Mm-hmm. But the, the theatre, particularly the theatre world, is in is in tatters at the moment. And, yeah, I know I think it's terrifying because, you know, the arts are the only thing that separate us from the apes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, without the arts, humans, <laughs> we're, we're no better than, you know, than... than than apes and so, and I think it's terrifying how many people don't see that particularly politicians mm-hmm. um who don't understand the importance of culture and theater and art and museums and galleries and all of those things mm-hmm. but yeah we I mean hopefully these things will spring yeah. back there are enough people that love it that yeah. I think yeah I think they misunderestimate the money it brings in as well to the country I mean it, it, oh my god it's, yeah it's, massively it's it's massive and um, also go back into your acting career. I've uh, seen you now a few times on the film Beauty and the Beast. I have watched it <laughs> several. Whoever I've been watching it with, I'm like, I know this guy that's coming on in a minute. Uh, what was that experience like? It was it was amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was one of those. It was one of those total dream jobs where um, we auditioned for it, and then it took months to be cast they um, obviously it's Disney they've got plenty yeah. of money they can take their time and so we were all kind of penciled and held for ages and then yeah one day I got a call from my agent and they're like you're you're doing a, a Hollywood Disney movie which was crazy and um yeah I mean just the sets and the costumes and being around again being around these you know I remember I remember the the day we did the first full cast read through uh, which there's footage of on the DVD, I think, on like the special oh, I'm features. Check this out. <laughs> yeah, and things like Emma Thompson got up and sang Taylor's Oldest Time, you know, Beauty and the Beast, and it was just amazing. And we we're all sat there watching Emma Thompson singing. <laughs> it was, you know, and Ian McKellen sat next to her, and yeah, it was really, really fabulous. It was a lovely job. That's great. And you got a line in one of the songs as well, I believe. A couple of lines in the yeah. In the song. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll uh, I'll dine out on that for years. Yeah, I've got yeah. a solo line in the opening song. Although um, I mean, it's like a drinking game. I'm I'm peppered throughout the film. If you, I think if you took a drink every time you saw me, you'd be very drunk by the end of the movie. <laughs> I've got little snapshot bits all the way. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I, but yeah, now and again, it, I'm looking. I'm like, is that? I'll oh, get that bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard work though. I mean, like we got for we filmed not const not constantly, but we filmed over a period of nine months. And um, 
every, you know, we probably had over 100 filming days and every single one of those, I was up at three and I was in a cab by four and then we were in hair and makeup by about half five in the morning. Like, it was insane. Mm, that's um, great. But that's, that's, yeah, that's that, that, crazy, I mean, crazy. it's insane, but, like, I mean, it's great just to know that you, you, you could say, I've been in a feature, Disney feature film and that's always going to be there. That must yeah. be an amazing feeling. <laughs> You know, My weird career. You. Your niece must be like, it's Uncle Stephen, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that must be brilliant for you. Yeah, M- M- Matilda, my niece, is um is terrifying. She's more intelligent than all of the rest of my family put together. Yeah. And she's I saw, five. Oh, I saw a tweet that you put up the other day about your niece. What was it? Oh, it was brilliant. I can't remember what it was now. Like oh, she called my, my... Yeah, she's only five, but she's so... I mean, her, her language is incredible. She's She's so articulate. And she's obsessed with the horrid history books. Yeah. And my sister told her that she couldn't go trick-or-treating. So she called my sister Oliver Cromwell <laughs> and said she was living in a Puritan house. Oh, that's amazing. Is, living up to the name Matilda yeah. pretty well then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Very much her namesake, yeah. 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 Um, so what um, children's books did you enjoy listening to? And you, Who was your inspirations, I guess, in reading? When I was a little boy... Um, I suppose, I mean, a big a big part was, I mean, I was practically illiterate until I was probably about seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I didn't have, the, I, you know, I, it wasn't that I didn't have the capacity to read, but um, I, I had a really bad start with reading and I was kind of taught that reading was like a punishment. Um, you know, it, it, I'm I'm nearly forty, and the school, you know, schools have changed a lot. And in in back when I was a kid, we had this reading scheme called um, Billy Blue Hat. Do you remember? I don't know if you remember. I don't know. Who, you know Billy Blue Hat. Do you remember those? Roger Red Hat. Was that the same? The, up, yes. Up oh yes, my God! Roger I hated Red Hat. them. Yes. 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 Them, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there was Billy Blue. They, these kids were so boring that the only <laughs> their only defining characteristic was the color of their hat. Yes. Yep. And um. And yeah, so, uh, Billy Blue Hat, Roger Red Hat, and Jennifer Yellow Hat. That was the one. And um, yeah, I want to commit great acts of violence on whoever <laughs> wrote them. I don't know who wrote them, but they're just awful. Yeah. And it was so boring that I just refused to read. So I was incredibly behind in my class. And then um, when I was maybe in the third year of primary school, I think it was, um, Jeremy Strong, who's a fabulous children's writer, um, took over as my headmaster so I he was my headmaster at primary school um it was amazing it was like having Willy Wonka as a headmaster (laughs) um and he really changed things and taught probably an entire generation of kids in my village that reading was fun um and I think that's just fundamentally part of learning to read is to learn that it's a pleasure and so it wasn't until then so um Jeremy Strong was a massive inspiration for me when I was young um Roald Dahl, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I have quite a, a violent sense of humour anyway, even as a child I did. And just the, the deliciousness of Dahl. Mm. Um, things I, you know, I will I'll never forget the first time I read, um, I think it's George's Marvellous Medicine, where he describes grandmother's mouth as being puckered up like a dog's bottom. And I rem- it's, just, it's just deliciously wicked. Yeah. And I remember just the the utter shock that someone put that in a book mm-hmm. um and a, a, another example which i always talk about when i do my events is revolting rhymes yes. when he says the small girl smiles one eyelid flickers she whips a pistol from, from her knickers, knickers. Yep. 
Yeah. yeah, and I remember just being so shocked. Like that was yeah. just I, I, and that just made me love yeah. those books, and yeah, I have ever since. You know. I remember listening to Revolt and Rhymes the first time. I mean, you must have been year year two, year three, or something. But yeah, you know, I, I remember being at first with Roald Dahl, being a bit horrified that someone was ruining my fairy tales. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. it was like there was like there was there those heads chopped off was that in cinderella yeah. it was just like well, what is going on this isn't the disney sort of aspect of fairy tales that i know yeah. um but yeah no Roald R was i mean he was the the sort of i mean he's the writing children's writing buddha really isn't he Roald R? he's the, yeah. the one we all yeah. sort of um you know every um, children's writer i feel has got some uh linked to how Roald Dahl inspired them. I think for me, James and Giant Peach was the first book that I read as a child and really got me into uh, Roald Dahl stories. But you obviously, you've run, you won the um, Roald Dahl Funny Prize, I believe, um, a few years ago. I didn't win. I didn't win. Didn't um, win. No, I was, okay. I was, I was shortlisted. Yes. Yes, shortlisted. Um, which yeah, is still no, great. I mean, it was, still, a, it, you know. <laughs> oh, do you know, it was so lovely. Yeah. Um, it was my first ever book. So to be shortlisted for the Royal Dahl Funny Prize was mm. really, really nice. Brilliant. And I lost to, um, I was talking about this the other day, I lost to Liz Pichon's first Tom Gates book. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, well, not a bad person and, to lose to. <laughs> exactly. And I remember at the time being like, I hate this woman. Who <laughs> is she? I bet she's awful. And then met her and she was absolutely lovely. You, you could never, ever dislike Liz Pichon. So um, she was a very worthy winner and I'm a humble loser. <laughs> That's good. That's good to hear. Um, <laughs> so something that comes up quite a lot in the sort of writing community, and I, I don't like being on the fence with things, but with this, I do find myself a little bit on the fence is um, the sort of the idea of celebrity children's authors. So we have obviously the ones that, you know, because yeah. I, I feel like you do get the ones that are quite genuine with it. Like David Williams, although he's taken over the world of um, children's writing, he, I mean, he is a writer. I mean, before he did this, he was before Little Britain, he was writing for television and radio. And, and Tom Fletcher seems like someone who's very passionate about the books that he writes. You know, he has the Tom's yeah. Book Club, which I believe your book was, Nothing to See Here Hotel, was yes, yes, involved it was, yeah. as well. But then I think yeah. me and you have joked about some, we won't mention any names, about some celebrities that perhaps haven't genuinely written their own stuff. <laughs> and... Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think I, I, when it comes down to book writing, I think if you write your own books... Um, that's a start. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I think, obviously, tr- trying to remain diplomatic, um, <laughs> I think there are a lot... No, actually, there aren't a lot. I think there are some celebrity authors who are in a p- position because... Um, how can I put this? Let's be... What a lot of people <laughs> don't realise, um, a lot of people who are, are not in the book industry don't realise, is that... Um, a place in the charts is not a genuine thing. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, one person whose name I can't mention, <laughs> who is constantly at the top of the charts, people don't realise is that he's there because his publisher has paid for that space. Um, and, yeah, so I think I think when it comes to celebrity authors, just read them, um, because a chart space doesn't necessarily mean talent. And, a lot, you know, there are a lot of books that are... Well, you know, I may, maybe not awful, but very mediocre. But they're sailing high at the top of the charts. Yeah. And um, but I think you know, if you if you are a parent to a to a book loving child, you read them, read them, and see what you think. Because you you know, it doesn't take long to sniff out a bad book and go, actually, this isn't 
particularly great. Um, and then the other class of that is just those that don't even write their own, you know, the, they, they just put their name on something, which, um, again, I think you can sniff that out very quickly. Mm. Um, and yeah, um, you know, it, it's quite trendy in the same way that celebrities put their name on, like, you know, their perfume and maybe their lingerie brand. And then the next thing is like, oh, yeah, I'll do a kid's book. Um, and those ones can just get get in the bin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, like I said, there, but, um, there are, like you said, there are some good ones. I think Tom Tom Fletcher's books that I, mean, I haven't read all of them, but some of them I've read seem very. Yeah, you know, I know Tom really well, and yeah. he's great, and he's a really passionate. He's a really passionate writer, and he cares about his works. He cares about his books, and he works hard. I have, you know, I don't even see Tom as a celebrity writer. I just see Tom as a writer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so what's what's kind of going on with you in terms of the next instalment of Nothing to See Here Hotel, the fourth book? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because I know it's just recently come out. Yeah, the fourth one, um, it's called Fiend of the Seven Sewers. And it's the first time we leave the hotel. It's the first oh, time okay. that we get an... Uh, so the world expands. Um, I mean, in the third book, we kind of leave the hotel because we go to the bottom of the ocean. But technically, it's still <laughs> part of the hotel. But... Um, Yes, it's the first time we leave the hotel. So we go to two big new locations, which is a little magical fishing town called Hovel. And then we go to the big goblin city of Gradibash, which is in the sewers, um, somewhere underneath Croydon. Um, and yeah, <laughs> I don't know why I chose that. Um, it works. <laughs> and yeah, and it's so yeah, it's the first time that um, we leave the hotel and Frankie is kidnapped and I won't tell you too much. No, uh, no, no. I'm going to ruin it for anybody. But um, yes, it's um, and it's a it's a big book. It's the biggest one so far. But uh, so yes, it was a, it was a big big old marathon to write. But I'm so pleased that it's been received well because it was written with love. <laughs> <laughs> I know that phrase. <laughs> and um, yeah. so yeah, um, obviously over this last year, you say you've been writing quite a lot. Are you still working on new installments of the Nothing to See Hotel um, series or you work on any new projects at the minute as well? I've had a kind of a crazy year actually it's it's a bit like literary schizophrenia this year (laughs) um I did at the very beginning of the year I did an adaptation of Northanger Abbey for Hachette for well for for Hodder under Hachette and um and yeah, it was terrifying I mean it was pant-wettingly scary because (laughs) you know I'm I'm not too ashamed to admit that I know virtually nothing about Jane Austen and when I was asked to do it, um, I was, you know, essentially the project was to to introduce Jane Austen to a new audience of younger readers. So in order to do that, I had to introduce myself to Jane Austen. Um, and it was great. I read Northanger Abbey and I ended up reading it 10 times. I kind of just front to back, front to back, front to back like crazy. So I did that at the beginning of the year and I'm... Yeah, really proud of it. It turned out to be just a, just a really lovely project. Yeah. And that um, must be a real challenge for you to kind of make it appealing for children in today's sort of Well, I mean, way. <laughs> it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't in the sense that um, they are so well written. Jane Austen was such a brilliant master storyteller that it made the job easy, really. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, in the sense that there's just... I think you you had to start the project knowing that you cannot improve it. Hmm. You can't improve it. So all you can do is make it more accessible. And then that actually was fine. I, I really, really enjoyed it. It was stressful because it. Well, I was working on it just as lockdown happened. And it felt like the world was ending and it was all very scary. You know, we've all become really used to it now. Mm-hmm. But that was great. And then I have did another dog 
Diaries, which yes, is the all, yeah. collaboration I have with James Patterson. So that's done. And I'm now working on a brand new standalone book um, uh, about ghosts. I'm writing a, a ghost story about theatre ghosts. Oh, theatre ghosts. Oh, yeah, really, cool. really, really fun. I'm enjoying it. And I, as far as new Nothing to See Here hotels, I have no idea. I'm still waiting to hear what you, you know, the kind of the axe is in the air at the moment and we're waiting to hear our fate as to whether there will be another one. I don't know. Mm. Um, Cause obviously everything's very slow with COVID, but um, we shall see. I would like to do another one because the story isn't finished. Yeah. There's a very big cliffhanger at the end of book four. So oh. I, so if I never write another one, I've left my readers dangling <laughs> forever. <laughs> so is, is, um, it, is, is it tough for you to, cause nothing to see here hotel is, is, proven to be very very popular with the children um is it harder to do you kind of set yourself the challenge of trying to top each book as you as you've um as you go through them um yeah i mean weirdly not so much with the hotel themselves because for me in my head it's just a continuation so um so there's not really that pressure but things like i'm writing this new book about ghosts and there's very much that pressure now that i'm i'm like right this has to be as good if not better than the nothing to see here hotel so there's there's it's actually pressure with other work that you're doing um with the hotel because you know i've done four books now and i've 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 spent two well nearly three years with those characters so i feel quite comfortable with those so the pressure with the actual stat series is fine because i just kind of know what i'm doing with them they're kind of very familiar to me but working on this new book where it's totally new characters and a totally new narrative voice because obviously the hotel is in first person and the hotel is told in Frankie's voice um whereas this new book is in third person so yeah it's kind of weird it's weird going back to third person (laughs) after three years away from writing third person books yeah Yeah, definitely do you envision potentially working with Steve Lenton again on your illustrations for the new one is that when you're sort of picturing the story in your head um, he's not doing the ghost book, okay. but if there are if there are more um, nothing to see here hotels in the future, he will definitely be on the yeah on the project. Brilliant. So we shall see, but who knows? Who knows? Well, Stephen, it's yeah. absolutely great talking <laughs> to you today. It's been too long, and I'm glad that we've had a chat today. How lovely! Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been really nice talking to you too. Cheers. See you again soon. Okay, so Jane Hissy, uh, it's great to be talking to you today. You're actually, you're the, I think the earliest memory I have of reading books was Old Bear, um, in terms of the, the the first book I ever had. I've still got it, my very original, the Old Bear book, when they're trying to get Old Bear from the attic. Um, yes, I, and I, I, there was even some of the artwork as well that I think um, I think I had like as a, a present from some of my aunties when I was younger that I've still got. Um, like I have to get my mum to look at that. Uh, so how have you been? It's been a weird, a weird 2020. How have you been coping with it all? I've been really busy because I started a book just before the lockdown. Well, actually, I started it um, last June. So I worked right the way through until the end of the year. And then when we were locked down, I had I still had plenty to of illustrations to do. Mm. Um, and so I used the time, I find drawing very calming. And so I was able to draw all through the stress of it. But actually, we're very fortunate. We're very rural and um, shut away. So we just, oh, the, 
sorry, that's <laughs> emails coming in. Um, yeah, it's been it's been okay because I've had I've been working on this book, um, which I'd been wanting to do a Christmas book for ages, okay. and uh, I had to start a Christmas book in the middle of summer, and finish it hmm. in the middle of summer, which meant bringing in potted Christmas trees and getting the Christmas decorations done from the attic. So it was a pretty weird year anyway, without the <laughs> lockdown and coronavirus. Yeah. Um, and of course, the thing about being shut away at home, I couldn't do any school visits. Yeah. Um, I couldn't do any book signings, um, go anywhere, really. Yeah. So, that, was, that really, was that really sort of hard and difficult as well? Because I've missed that. I've missed going around schools. I found that really yeah. difficult, miss, missing that. I'm missing it more than I thought I would, actually. Because, yes, me too. Yeah, me yeah. too. Because, because we, I think we just got World Book Week. I think it was, we just, yeah. I just managed that week and I was very yes, busy. During, I was just very busy during that week. And then it was pretty much more or less straight after World Book Week. We had lockdown and, you know, exactly happened. Exactly that, yes. Yeah, and it was kind of nice to kind of, okay, well, I've got a little break from it now but after a month or so I was I was kind of getting the itch again to to get back mm. into schools yes it's true um I find that when I go into schools I get such good feedback that you you know who you're working for you know why you're doing it yes. um and it's harder to do that but I've had a lot of emails from children during lockdown um and so I did a lot of letter writing um, and sending <clears throat> sending letters to schools and individual children, and also um, chill, I did recordings um, of me reading books so that um, teachers could use them for children. And actually, I found a, I had a lot of requests from uh, teachers who were reading for their class remotely. Um, asking if they could have permission to read the books. So that was really nice because I made lots of new connections with teachers that way all over the world, really, because they were doing this just online. Um, so that that helped. But it's I still feel that lack of connecting with children um, is difficult because I like to see them in person. Of course, yeah. Um, and, I, and that's lovely that you're communicating with teachers because I think teachers mm. are just, they're so important because for some children teachers are the only outreach they have in terms of getting a book read to as well you know having the book read to them and um especially with your books I find they're really beautiful for, for younger children to have them read to by an adult so I, I think teachers have just such an important part in, in especially nowadays where authors and books are competing with so much technology in terms mm. of you know entertainment for children yeah. so I, I really do think teachers have an important role about introducing um I think they do yeah. I think they do and there are quite a lot of teachers who write to me who who grew up with my books um and then are able to pass them on to the children in the in the class um and read to them but I think a lot of reading at home has has gone. I, I think mm. bedtime reading is a real problem with bedtime reading that people aren't, they're either plugging children, parents are plugging children into their um, various devices to have stories read to them remotely, but I don't think there's anything quite as good as sitting close to a child and reading to them. And I think that this is a problem in that children aren't getting much physical contact anyway. Mm. They're missing out on this really, really in a 
in a big way. I'm noticing it with my grandchildren that because they're not allowed to hug, they almost flinch when you touch them now. <laughs> um, you know, sort of touch a shoulder, they sort of pull away because they've got used to being detached from people. And so it's very, very important for parents to give them that really close bonding of reading to them at bedtime. Um, because only parents can actually do that, sit them on their lap or cuddle close, um, you know, sit on their bed and read to them. Um, uh, teachers can't do that at the moment. They can read to them, but they can't really get close enough. And it's, uh, it's, it's such a shame. It's, uh, it's a very hard part of the, of the lockdown problem. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to think, what year was it that Old Bear came out the, the original story of Old 86. Bear. 86. 86. 86. Ends, it makes me feel oh, so... <laughs> oh, no. I can't believe that, 1986. Yeah, so I, I was born in 1989. So, yeah, it would have... So I grew yeah. up with old... I remember the old um, ITV TV show of Old Bear yeah. as well. That, that yes. won a BAFTA, I believe. Um, it, children. Yes, there were 40, 40 episodes of it. It was... Yeah. Um, several years of of writing and oh it was great fun actually because the it was done with model animation and uh, I was able to get involved in helping make the models um, and actually being there when they were animated it was in the studios in in London and it was a very young and enthusiastic team working on it and it was such fun because I knew nothing about animation before mm. that, but I had to do the scripts and send the scripts. With the I was um, faxing scripts at midnight, you know, little tiny mm -hmm. changes and things. Um, but it was great, and actually, I loved the model model making part of it. I can remember sitting one night making a dandelion for a gardening story that I'd made out of fabric and thread and goodness knows what it did look like a dandelion at the end of it <laughs> it was great fun great that's fun. great yeah and that's lovely you were involved as well because I think a lot of them um, the sort of yeah. the bigger tv or theatre whatever it is they're kind of quite happy to get have the author kind of not involved creatively when it's being no, adapted so it's lovely that you remote, have, I think sometimes yeah, yeah so it's lovely it's, that you were able to help out creatively with the tv show yeah Yes, it was a very holistic experience, really. Writing the stories, doing the illustration, then making models and working with the animators. And um, it meant that the whole thing sort of came together. And it was it was a lovely time, really. Um, good fun. That's brilliant. So, I mean, talking about Old Bear, so where did the idea of Old Bear come from? Was it, was it based on sort of um, just a story that you would tell? or, or They originally... I gathered together um, a group of characters, actual, the, the toys themselves, um, seeing, it, seeing it from an illustrator's point of view. I wanted a group of characters that would look good together and work well together in the story, so have good, interesting characters. So I was originally, what happened? I had done some drawings of toys simply for fun. Um, my editor, then editor, who I actually worked with for 25 years at Random House, it was Hutchinson then, um, saw some of my drawings and asked me if I would do 
a book, which so it was an unusual way round, okay. a nice way round. And I wasn't originally going to write the story, but after, when nobody had sort of come up with a story after a while, I said, well, I'd quite like to write the story too. And, um, and I did the story um, with my editor's help, Old Bear, and it was just based, it, because I had the group of characters, the story sort of um, evolved from those characters themselves, so that it just, uh, and it, in fact, the story of Old Bear being rescued from the attic was partly based on fact, in that when I was a child, we moved house quite a lot because my father was in the Navy. And my toys all got put away in the attic and we moved. And when we came back to this old cottage, I found them in the attic, <laughs> having not seen them for several years. And I didn't exactly rescue them with a handkerchief parachute, but it was <laughs> it was a good reunion. So uh, that was how Old Bear, the first story, came about. And uh, from then on, um, just worked my way through other ideas that um, I had young children at the time, and they often gave me ideas. And I had a little notebook that I used to write down things that I wanted to draw and then weave them into the stories because obviously enjoying the drawings was a major part of mm. uh, working on the books. Yeah. So by um, by actually having my list, I included yeah, bubbles, feathers, cardboard boxes, books, anything that I really wanted to draw. I just um, wrote the stories to go with it with That's them. Right. That's amazing. So it was sort of art or illustrating, was that kind of your passion as a, as a child more so than perhaps writing? Yes, I was always drawing as a child and I did really enjoy writing, but I didn't really see myself as a writer. Um, I used to write, I used to write a lot actually, but it was just for fun. And the drawing, I studied illustration with a view to illustrating. Um, and actually originally I wanted to be a medical illustrator because I thought I liked oh, right. biology, zoology and botany. And art, I think I studied as uh, at A level, and um, thought that medical illustration would uh, <laughs> would be a great way of using all three interests. But then, when I was at college in Brighton, my personal tutor was John Vernon Lord. He did the giant jam sandwich, amongst other things, and he brought me in a book of medical illustrations and said, are you sure you want to do this? And I looked at it, never having really looked at what a medical illustration was. I found it in a careers book at, at school when I was at school. Our only careers advice was a, a book hanging on a string in the front hall uh, with career, <laughs> careers. <laughs> so um, I then decided that perhaps medical illustration wasn't such a good idea. So uh, I didn't. <laughs> and I went on to do to do um, design and illustration, and um, and then that led to the books. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you went down that career path in the end because we would have had Old Bear otherwise. And um, it's really, really beautiful, unique illustrations you do for Old Bear. It's very, um, you know, you don't really see that much anymore. Just such a fine, you know, such attention to detail in the illustrations for the characters and. Um, were they? Because I know that you you have the 
the old bear sort of set do you do you, do you, do you do. take them around schools or do you usually I do yes yeah, yeah. yes yes they're getting pretty threadbare now because they've visited so many schools yeah I can remember taking them once on a, a book signing tour in the states and the we were staying with the editor there at um Putnam Books I think it was and she I was doing a lot of internal flights in America and she gave me a basket to put the bears in because I didn't really need to put them in a suitcase. And I remember putting putting all the toys in this basket on that thing that goes through the scanner um, at yep. the airport and the basket fell over and the toys came out one after the other on the thing and I just picked them up, popped them back in the basket and the woman looked at me sort of quizzically and I said, I'm a very nervous flyer. <laughs> I, have to, I have to have them with me <laughs> and marched off with my basket of toys. <laughs> but, uh, yes, I have all the toys that I draw. I always draw from life. So I always have the, the actual toys in front of me. In fact, Old Bear was my own teddy bear when I was a baby. So he's as threadbare as I am now. Oh, um, yeah, I've had him a really long time. That's yeah. amazing. It's, 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 I had a similar experience where, uh, um, like you said at the airport, because sometimes when I go around schools for the for the for the younger children, those sort of very sm- tiny mm. small ones, I sometimes use puppets and things like that. Mm. And um, <laughs> and it was, uh, I think after I was book signing once, um, this little girl <laughs> said to her parent, "You know, oh, oh, mum, that's the man of all the little friends." And I was just like, "Oh my." My GP says the same thing, actually. It's lovely. Yeah, well, I, I take all my friends to school. That's <laughs> yeah, great. So I suppose, how have you um, how have you sort of seen, obviously, you know, you've been visiting schools and working with children now with, with Old Bear and, and the visits that you do for mm. for for a long time so have you how have you have you seen it sort of have you noticed like an evolution of children in terms of what they're into reading and writing and things like this yes I think um I think the children that I used to talk to well I mean the age group that my books were aimed at would have been four to seven at one time uh, I would now say sort of two to five mm-hmm. and the older ones perhaps move on to something else at that time there wasn't very much for them and there's more written for the sort of five to seven year olds yeah. um, plus now than there was so maybe my age range has changed slightly to be slightly younger or maybe in fact publishers have aimed me at younger children because mm-hmm. that's it gives them a sort of niche um and maybe the illustrations tend to suggest younger children but what i like is the fact that parents can read um my books to very very young children and say you know there's a dog there's a bear you know and without worrying too much about the actual story look at the illustrations yeah then the slightly older children can be read to then the ones the older ones can read it themselves and it's already familiar. And so it gives it a sort of good lifespan. And then hopefully they put it away and keep it for their children, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is what I found so often is people still have the books, which is, which is great. That's, um, that's the best 
the best sort of honour that you can have really is when people hang on to your books because they're so familiar. Oh yep. Yeah. So, so my mum's still got mine. My mum's still got yeah. mine and, and the little artwork that we had in yeah. our little nursery at the time. That's that's really and, nice uh, though, isn't it? it oh really yeah, does, it's it's lovely. It does say it's, something. Yeah. yeah, and I suppose it's really nice. I suppose when you get letters and emails now from from, from kids, um, mm. uh, that's always really nice as well. I feel you do, they, you know, they want to do that yes. with you. Yes, I think yeah. um, I've got my attic is actually so full of letters from children that one day somebody will have to clear it out, but it won't be me. I can't bear to throw any away, so I never have. So I've got. 30 plus years of children's letters up oh, there. Oh, amazing. That's really um, nice. Which, because often they're the first letter that they ever write. And so you think, I can't throw that away. That's so important. And occasionally I've dug through them to find something because somebody said, I wrote to you when I was five and they're now oh. <laughs> 35 and have children. <laughs> and so it's, yeah, it's great fun. That's, it's I think that's one of the most important things I do is actually writing back to children. I think uh, when I do it, I never resent the time. I always um, enjoy that because I know how important it is when they yeah. write to someone, how important it is to get a reply. Um, so it's good. Yeah, that's really lovely, lovely to hear. So, I mean, you sort of talked about sort of the, I guess, your target audience of, of children being lower slightly. Um, but do you think part of that is because children are, because I always worry about it a little bit, that children are kind of exposed to so much stuff at a younger age nowadays mm. that they are like, sometimes when I go around primary school, uh, I will hear sort of year, I guess year two, year three, talking about going to play a video game that I know is quite a graphic video game when I was like, I would never have been able to play that at my yeah. age. And yeah. but when, so I'm hearing all these kids saying they're going to go play this, that and the other. And I'm like, yeah. you do have to be 18 to buy to play no. that video game. No. So, so I do worry, about, I, that does worry me um, sometimes. It, it worries me a lot, actually. Um, and I see it with my own grandchildren that they are seeing films that I would probably have found really scary, um, even mm. Harry Potter or something, you know, mm. I, I thought when I saw that, I thought, oh, God, this is really scary. <laughs> Little children are watching this. And, and maybe they're not meant to at very young ages, but I know that they have. Um, and I do think that sometimes they want things to be really calm and quiet. And I found that during lockdown especially when people were at home I've had several people tell me that their children are watching the the old bear videos on because I put them all on a YouTube channel um, that they're watching them because they're very calm and gentle mm. and I never put anything in them like an argument or uh, anything harsh so that they're sort of very safe viewing but not just safe but creative in that they usually lead to an activity that you could do with a child or something so they were good for parents and children to sort of watch together and I found that they've really used those that fact during this um, sort of lockdown time um, in order to have that to reintroduce that slow calm um, time with children that isn't sort of zap and pow and fast yeah. and there's a time for, there's a, 
a bit of everything, but um, it, it, I think that it, it is important to still to still go down that route and not not feel that you have to conform to the um, the very fast social well the sort of sensory overload really mm-hmm. which is what everything that's produced now seems to do it seems to hit you with <laughs> fast fast action yeah and well, no, so yeah, I, I, like, yeah. Yeah, oh, it's like slow TV, like those yes. things. <laughs> yes, no, I get what you mean. Sort of things. It's different. Yeah, no, well, I, I saw your YouTube YouTube channel with all the old videos on it, and you know, I was like, wow, there, there are thousands and thousands. Lots of people have been tuning to watch those episodes mm, on YouTube. They have, yeah, yeah amazed. It's amazed me yeah. how um, how many have been uh, using them, and schools as well, because when I was writing them, I my children were young and I tended to, if they were doing castles at school in their national curriculum or whatever, then I thought, oh, great, I'll write a story about castles. So I'll bear and the others, you know, play castles and and you can throw in a few facts, useful fact, yeah. castle facts in the middle. Um, and it's interesting, the ones that are really popular. There's a, there's a, treasure hunt one which um is really fun where the uh, toys you know, follow a treasure hunt and i think it's giving people ideas of how, what to do children always love treasure hunts um yeah they it, they have been really popular really mm, popular yeah. it gives them that sense of play as well doesn't it not just mm. a story but it, it is really tuning in imagination like so yes. stuff like treasure hunts it gives them yeah. that feel of play as well yeah. And it is, there's one one of the stories, the winter picnic, where the toys go on a on a picnic in the middle of winter, all wrapped up and take warm food and things. And quite often schools do that. They actually have written to me or or sent me photos of the children setting off on a winter picnic, you know, with with um, jacket potatoes and things. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's lovely to think that a story can trigger an activity like that. It's really fun. Yeah. So when so when you were a child, were there what sort of books was it that you were really into as oh, a child? Oh, Enid Blyton. I loved yeah. Enid Blyton and um, uh, um, Arthur Ransom. I particularly, I grew up in Norfolk, so the Norfolk Broads featured quite <laughs> strongly in my childhood and Arthur Ransom wrote quite a few based around the Norfolk Broads so that it was very familiar territory um, but I really I I um, could see nothing wrong with Enid Blyton she was uh, oh, a good storyteller yeah. um, and they were exciting um, and there wasn't a lot of choice uh, when I was a child there wasn't a lot um there were sort of old classics, you know, like Black Beauty and things like that. But um, I, I remember visits to the library as the most thrilling thing. Um, I lived the library in the nearby town, which we were fairly rural, so it took a while to get there. Um, it was in an old an old building, and I can remember the smell of the books as I went in mm. and the excitement of borrowing the latest uh, adventure stories it was uh, it was great 
That's amazing. So I, I guess you've kind of seen a journey through throughout the children's literature. Just it kind of because now it's just there's so much for kids to be able to get their hands yes, on and read. Yeah. And I guess you've kind of seen it from you know your days of reading Enid Blyton as a child, then going through I guess the Roald Dahl phase where he sort of overtook the the, yes. the reading population uh, for children, yeah. and uh, and then now it's just everyone's kind of got a children's book out. So it must have been yes. you must have seen a very interesting trend in the children's yes. world. Yeah. Yes, it's quite amazing, really, yeah. to think how few few books there were around. I mean, there weren't many books written specially for children, apart from people like Arthur Ransom and Enid Blyton. And, um, and I can remember going and staying in my grandmother's house and in the little back bedroom that always smelt of apples because she stored mm. apples under the bed for the winter. And the bookshelves, there was just a limited number of things like Moby Dick and things on the bookshelves, yeah. but also how to keep chickens and mm -hmm. gardening books and things. And I just read my way through all these books, whatever they were, whether they were for children or not. It was just that devouring books and not having enough books to read. So mm -hmm. you you read everything um, that was written, that you could find that was written. Yeah. Um, but now there's so much choice that it's quite overwhelming, really. It is overwhelming. Um, it's, I guess for some kids, they don't know where to start sometimes, I suppose. No. It, it could be so much. And I guess going back to the importance of kids being read to it and reading and stuff, sometimes I do, I know we talked about sort of being exposed to too much at a young age, but I mean, sometimes I do worry as well that there isn't that kind of, I, I guess it's almost like the family bond is not as close as, as it used to be. Like even from when I was younger, um, mm. in terms of being read to and things, and it's like you, you don't really hear of just families having dinner together anymore and, and things like that. So no. there, there, there is, I don't know how you feel about that, but it does worry me slightly. It worries me quite a lot, actually. Yeah. The, it's the work pattern. Um, I mean, my, um, my son was commuting and the uh, having to work from home has been uh, amazing for his ch children. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's been very hard work for him because <laughs> he's been trying to work full time with three children around all at different ages. Um, and his wife's a teacher, so she was actually out um, working because well, he was a special needs teacher. And it's very hard for him to do the home education bit and look after the children and give them exercise and work full time. And I don't know how, how he did it, but he would still find time to read to them at bedtime. But I think one of the things that tends to go is when children can read for themselves, read to themselves, then they're less likely to be read to at bedtime. But I think it's really important to carry on reading to children even after they can read for themselves because it's a, it is a sort of bonding thing, but you also hear a book in a different way when somebody's reading it to you. You mm. can sort of concentrate on the book rather than the reading. And I can so remember being read to. And we had, um, we lived in a very old, cottage when I was about uh, well sort of was well able to read to myself but and we it was um it was very remote and my mother was a widow so it was just my mother 
and my sister and myself. My brother was at boarding school. And sometimes on stormy nights, when it was really a bit scary in the house, we'd all get into my mother's bed and she'd read Winnie the Pooh to us. And also Mrs. Beaton's cookery book, which she <laughs> happened to have by the bed and would read recipes. To us. So it didn't matter what she was actually reading, but it was having her read to us mm -hmm. in stormy night in this very old cottage. Um, was a lasting memory, yeah. an exciting, an exciting it's, it's memory, really, a bit of adrenaline. Yeah, <laughs> and, I mean, mentioning Winnie the Pooh there, I could even remember, it's it's the memories of your of being read to that you have more than the actual story, I feel. Like, you know, my, yeah. my, my, my parents read really Winnie the Pooh, but I can't remember too much of the story itself from from when I was heard, heard it when I was younger, but I can remember my dad doing the voices for the characters and reading me the story, and that's what I, I was, remember. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's somebody doing the voices, isn't it? Yes. You can yes. do them in your own head, but you hear somebody else doing it. I can remember my grandmother reading to me when we stayed with her, and she had a special voice for reading. It was like... A, slightly more posh voice I think mm -hmm. than her normal voice and she would put on this very calm soothing sort of different voice her reading voice and she was a great reader and she read an awful lot and I often imagined that she must read all the books that she read in that voice it was <laughs> it was quite a different voice but I can hear it now you know years and years and years later I can just hear her reading to us and uh, it was lovely yeah, um, I have to say you made my week this week when you said your grandchildren had a couple of my books that they that they. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> <It's> <laughs> great. Yeah, they I'd... do have an awful lot more books than I have <laughs> as a child now, but <laughs> it's great. Yeah, um, and I believe you have been writing this year um, as well, and working on a new story. Uh, yes, I worked on a Christmas book, um, Little Bear and the Silver Star, which I originally wrote for the TV shows, but it was a much longer version for a Christmas special I wrote. And I never had made it into a book, and I decided that it would be quite fun to do it. I'd never done a Christmas book, really. I'd done a slightly wintry one, Jolly Snow, but I hadn't actually done a Christmas one, um, partly because... Christmas books have a very short life, really, uh, mm -hmm. after yeah. Christmas. Nobody really wants a Christmas book. And I'd always sort of thought, that seems a shame. But I decided to do this because I thought it would be really fun to draw all those Christmassy things. So this book's got everything in it, you know, snow and Christmas trees and Christmas decorations and um, nighttime scenes and and. Uh, Christmas presents and chimneys and it's it's been really fun to do it did mean because I have to work from a still life setup uh, my husband Ivan had to help me build a little bit of a roof with a gutter and I had to fill it with fake snow and so that little bear could slide down the roof into the gutter <laughs> so I had to actually have it in my studio in the middle of summer, I was working on my snowy scenes, but uh, it was it was really fun. It was fun to do, um, 
but getting the Christmas decorations out in the middle of summer did feel awful, really. Yeah, it must, have been, hard to, it must have been hard to get into that festive spirit in the summer. We had a hot, I had a hot summer as well. Yeah, it was really hot, really hot. And there I was with my Christmas tree and all the decorations. And everyone would walk through my studio and say, oh, no, Christmas stuff. Um, and it was quite funny, but um, yeah, it's going to be funny soon having to get them all out of the attic again and bring them down because I've really only just put them away. Nice. <laughs> but, so, uh, but I managed to finish the book. Brilliant. <laughs> so, good. so we'll definitely look out for that. And um, I suppose over, um, so, you know, lots of people out there would, would that are interested in perhaps starting to write a book and write for children, I guess. Over your career, what's sort of the most valuable lessons that you've learned as a as a writer and an illustrator that you could probably pass on advice to people that want to get into that field? I think, I mean, I'm really lucky in that I write and illustrate um, my books. But and I get quite a lot of letters from people saying that they've um, written a story that they really like um, and how to go about illustrating it. And I think that publishers have a lot of illustrators that they want to sort of marry up with writers and the other way round mm-hmm. and and not to tr- worry too much about doing both obviously if you if you want to that's great but if you if you've written a really fantastic story don't worry too much about the illustration because there'll be an illustrator for you waiting for the perfect story um and i think uh, that worrying about doing both before approaching agents and and um um publishers it probably slows everything down and puts people off um so not to try and and do both unless you you know really feel that that's what you want to do but not if you're struggling but to persevere because um, it isn't, it, you just never know when you're going to get a lucky break. And it, and it's certainly, it, you don't be put off. Uh, the first time I went round um, agents and publishers in, in London, I had a, a day with my portfolio going around trying to get work and came home in tears saying, oh, that's it, you know, okay, give up, can't do that. and. I'd even gone to the publisher who finally published my books, but I went to the wrong department. You know, you you just don't get things right always. Um, I think I probably went to the adults bit and not the children's bit, and they Mm -hmm. never thought to pass me on. But don't give up. Um, Just persevere and, you know, believe in yourself. Um, and, And talk to children and be with children and try and sort of think like a child it's really important to actually tune in to your audience and don't try and be too sort of clever and adult with your books children like completely different things to what you think they like Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah well well, Jane Hissey it's been absolutely lovely for me to talk to you today uh thank you for giving me old bear as a child it got me into reading and i suppose writing as well so thank thank you so thank you so much for giving us old bear and um take care and i hope you and your family stay safe thank you so much this has been a real pleasure thank you (laughs)
So there you have it. The wonderful Stephen Butler and the incredible um, Jane Hissey there. Be sure to check out Stephen's books and Nothing to See Here Hotel. Um, yeah, I really can't recommend them enough, um, especially for, for kids sort of of the um, seven to nine bracket. You know, you, you're going you're gonna to love um, the, adventures the, the adventures of the Nothing to See Here Hotel. Be sh- uh, sure to follow Stephen on Twitter at sbutlerbooks. And, um, yeah, really uh, wonderful upcoming children's author with, I'm sure, wonderful um, books in the works as well. And also um, Jane Hissey we had included there with the Old Bear stories. And, um, yeah, she has got a new book coming out, like I said, a Christmas edition of um, Old Bear. And I know she's been writing on a few a few different things as well, but be sure to check out the new edition of um, the Old Bear Christmas reboot, I suppose. I don't know if it's a reboot of some sorts. Um, but anyway, Little Bear and the Silver Star. Be sure to check out that wonderful Christmas book um, from Jane Hissey. And be sure to follow her on Twitter, which is just at Jane Hissey. So be sure to follow both those wonderful children's authors on Twitter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Shapes of Stories and me at lprestige 7 be sure to follow me on Instagram at Prestige Books or follow me on Facebook just under Lawrence Prestige. Um, but yes, thank you everyone for listening today. And like I said, two two diff- very different children's authors, but two people with wonderful stories to tell and um, with wonderful books to share with you. So be sure to check out their work and um, yeah, look forward to bringing you more episodes of the Shapes and Stories 